snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host Yang Yong. Emperor Wu, or better known in Chinese as Wu Zetian or Wu Zhao, is undeniably one of the most riveting and prominent women in the entire history of China. <laughs> Running over a vast empire from 690 to 705 AD, she was the only female in some 2,000 years of China's imperial history who had ever sat on the throne as a ruler in her own right. Some 1,300 years after her death, Wu's unique persona has continued to inspire a great number of plays, films, games, anime and TV shows including a 96-episode soap opera that unabashedly applauds her beauty, brain, and strong-mindedness. Yet, history has not always been kind to Wu Zetian. For centuries, she has been portrayed as an abominable anomaly, either a sophisticated, succumbusa-like seductress, or a lethal, ruthless she-wolf who would murder her own children for power. But who was the real Wu Zetian? How did she rise to power? And why did she, out of all the other powerful women in Chinese history, become the de facto monarch? To investigate the true story of Emperor Wu, our reporter Shi Yu talks with Professor Eng Harry Rothschild, who teaches Asian history at the University of North Florida. He has also written two books on this remarkable historical figure. Professor Rothschild, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, no problem. I'm always a pleasure to talk about my favorite subject. So, I realized from your dissertation, more than a dozen essays, to your two books, Wu Zhao, China's Only Woman Emperor, and Emperor Wu Zhao, and her pension of Davies, divinities, and dynastic mothers. Apparently, you have written a great deal about Wu Zhao, China's sole female emperor. So, I wonder what has prompted your interest in this woman in the very first place? Well... I wish I could say that it was Yuan Fun, uh, that my connection to and my interest in Wu Zhao was something that was sort of predestined or written in the stars. Um, <laughs> but the story is not quite that romantic. Okay. Um, when I was a PhD student at Brown University, I wanted to work in ancient China, but they would only let me work in medieval China. That was the earliest period I, I could work in. Mm. Uh, and then I was drawn to Wu Zhao in part because I'm intrigued by good stories. And her personal and political career just features a veritable library of good stories, uh, bizarre stories, wonderful stories, real mm -hmm. stories, fake news, uh, fabricated stories. <laughs> yeah. So I like the challenge of trying to tease out the character behind the caricature that sort of has been created. Mm -hmm. um, 
the essential and eminently human presence beneath all of these accumulated layers of myth and legend. And I mean, from the beginning, uh, she just struck me as perhaps the single most fascinating and compelling historical personages that I've encountered.、Mm-hmm. So before we move further into the discussion, I noticed that in your books you usually address Emperor Wu as Wu Zhao instead of her most well-known name Wu Zetian. Why is that? It's the name she gave herself in 689, shortly before she became emperor or declared herself emperor. She created a new series of characters. Imagine what courage,、uh, what sort of Self-presence. It would take、uh, if I was here and I wanted to create a 27th and 28th letter of the English alphabet.、Mm-hmm. And this is this is sort of inventing new characters. Some of them she was using from Zhuangwen from the past, but a lot of them are new. And these are characters for ruler and subject, for heaven and earth, for sun and moon. Yeah. And she she fashioned the character Zhao for her own name.、Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is illumination over the void. You know, Ming Zai Kongshang, or it's the sun and moon presiding over emptiness.、Mm. It's this self-fashioned, distinctive signature, a signet that attests to her unique brand of power. Yeah, and she deserves to be known by the name that she gave herself. You know, if we, if we call her Empress Wu or Wu Ho, it's、yeah. disparaging, and it fails to recognize the paramount position of emperor that she reached. I mean, does anyone call? Tang Taizong, Li Shermin. Do we call him Qin Wang, the the Prince of Qin? No, you know you want to call you know, a ruler by either their sort of self-designated name or by the highest position that she's reached. And Zhu Tian, that's the name of a gate where she proclaimed herself emperor, and it was also part of an honorific title, part of a posthumous title,、mm. but it was. It was never really her name. Just after her death, it became conflated with her name, and people started calling her Wu Zetian.、Mm. So I just think she's earned the name Zhao. If we call her anything less, it sort of fails to recognize、uh, what she was able to accomplish. It, it disparages her. It diminishes her achievement. So I use Zhao to validate her, to recognize what is really an unmatched and unprecedented、uh, historical achievement,、uh, an accomplishment. Yeah. So before we discuss her achievements in more details, let's step back a little bit. Since some of the listeners probably don't know much about ancient Chinese history, so could you briefly break down to them who Wu Jiao was? Sure.、Um, at fourteen, she sort of first appears in the historical records or on the scene,、uh, entering the imperial seraglio, the, the harem, as a tyrant, as a Ranked concubine of the second Tang Emperor Taizong,、uh, mm-hmm. Li Shermin.、Mm-hmm. Um, after Taizong's death, she becomes the primary consort, the empress of Taizong's son, the third Tang Emperor Gaozong or Li Zhi.、Mm-hmm. Um, Gaozong has a whole bunch of health issues in his thirties, and for the last quarter century of his reign, Wu Jiao co-ruled with him, becoming a familiar figure in court and politics. Uh, and that's one of the things that enabled her to eventually emerge as as emperor. She was the mother of the next two Tang emperors, but was unimpressed by their capacities to govern. And after her husband's death,、uh, she ruled first as dowager regent for six or seven years,、uh, and then finally,、um, with 
more than three decades of experience in court and politics uh, when she's in her mid-60s. After years of meticulous preparation, uh, she finally she, uh, ascends to the throne as emperor in 690. So it was that about 70 years into the Tang Dynasty, she severs the mandate and establishes her own separate Zhou Dynasty, uh, which lasted for 15 years before, uh, in her early 80s, uh, a coup removed her. Yeah. You know, ever since I was a child, I have been fed with all kinds of gruesome yet intriguing tales about Wu Zhao. You know, for example, when she was still a royal concubine, she strangled her infant daughter to frame Empress Wang for the murder, like how she killed her eldest son, the crown prince. Or later, she poisoned her husband, Gao Zong, so he could stay weak and sick, and she could become the de facto ruler. So I think she sounds like, you know, the Chinese version of Cersei Lannister. So in your opinion, are all those stories historically accurate? Um, no. No? <laughs> there certainly are lots of wonderful stories, and she does seem like a character straight out of Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah. And there are certainly times in her political career when Wu Zhao is genuinely cruel and ruthless mm-hmm. um, you know, to intimidate her political enemies. During the time she's a dowager empress uh, and she's being challenged in court, she fosters a culture of terror and has her ku li, her kind of strong-arm, cruel officials, men like uh, Lai Junchen and Zhou Xing, who slandered, imprisoned, and tortured, and took a certain delight in torturing anyone who challenged her authority. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of the stories that you mention about her cruelty and excess are questionable. They're dubious, and uh, they reflect the effort of uh, Confucian historians and uh, even of subsequent fiction to sort of demonize and vilify Wu Zhao. There's the famous anecdote that you referenced about Wu Jiao smothering her own newborn daughter yeah. and blaming the crime on her rival, Empress Wang. And that results in Empress Wang being deposed as Empress and Wu Jiao being elevated in her stead. Mm. Then I got to thinking, are we supposed to believe that there was a historian hiding behind the curtains in the <laughs> nursery who, who, watched, who watched all these events unfold in horror? And then elsewhere in the the very same sources that accuse Wu Zhao of this crime, we find out that Empress Wang is deposed because she's barren. She's unable to birth an heir for Gao Zong. Mm. So a number of scholars in this case have convincingly argued that the, the smothering story is a fabrication from later histories and, yeah, sure, kind of unofficial histories that depict Wu Zhao as sort of a a callous monster without human spirit and a ruthless schemer. Mm. Um, some of the other stories you mentioned, like the murder of her firstborn son or the poisoning of Gao Zong, those are problematic too and likely false. Mm-hmm. And this sort of gets to, there's a long-standing historical smear campaign to destroy her reputation that, that's gone on for centuries. And yeah. she is consistently depicted as something unnatural, something abhorrent, as uh, an anti-mother, you know, uh, the very antithesis of the gentle, soft, and yielding Confucian mother, sort of as the evil unwoman who has no concern for the larger family or the patriline. That's sort of a myth or a reputation I try to deconstruct in the 
biography. You know, it sounds like she was a victim of unfair obloquy. But how did Wu Jiao get such bad reputation? And when you wrote about her story, how do you determine which resource is reliable and credible? How did you get to the bottom of Wu Jiao's actual story? It's difficult. You sort of have to triangulate. You know, you look at all of the different sources, and almost all of them, or very few of them, are unbiased and even-handed. Almost all of them are very biased in one direction or another. And part of this,、uh, in terms of the the negative bias, there's the Confucian historiography in traditional China is infused with, or you could even say that it's poisoned by notions like Nanzun Yubei or The Sanzong Sude, you know, the Nanzu Nubei is the male is venerated and the female is denigrated. Sanzong are the three obediences、uh, and the Sude, the four virtues that women are supposed to possess, or the idea that becomes especially prevalent in later imperial China that a woman without talent is virtuous. The Nuzhu Wu Tai Bian Shude. Mm. Or that in the five relationships, the only relationship that explicitly features a woman is husband and wife, and the basic ethical relationships. And then you have institutions like concubinage, arranged marriage, and bound feet. Although that doesn't happen until after the Tang, and you get the idea that the deck is sort of stacked against women within this kind of historical tradition.、Mm. How could a woman who occupies a position of power be given? A clear and unbiased historical reading, and not surprisingly, she's not given that opportunity. And she is, as you said, sort of a a victim of history written by a system that's essentially patriarchal and androcentric. And after her reign, there's a concerted effort to prevent this sort of so-called disaster from ever occurring again. But that being said, I don't reject any of these sources.、Um, you recognize the bias. And you work that into your interpretation.、Mm. No single source can be taken as sort of objective historical truth. And you also have things working in another direction. You know, during her reign, Wu Jiao has propagandists and rhetoricians,、uh, these talented and artistic ministers who are tasking her in the most favorable light. But then you have the heavy weight, on the other hand, of centuries of scholars and historians who seek to demonize, denigrate, and erase her. Still, any primary source you look at, no matter how venomously critical it is or absurdly lavish it is in praise, can be useful and potentially valuable.、Mm. So, what I try to do is sort of sift through all these layers, these different biases, to identify something credible, something proximate to truth.、Uh, and I also try to utilize the materials that are closest to her own era and to her person. Poetry that she has written,、uh, memorials that she has written, or that、um, ministers have ghostwritten for her, funerary epitaphs from that period,、mm-hmm. and I also love unofficial sources like the Chaoye Jianzai or the Datang Xinyu that come from right around her period.、Uh, these kind of Zhuguai stories, the stories of miraculous events and anomalies, really appeal to the storyteller in me and. Sometimes reveal more than the official histories do. That was Professor Rothschild sharing with us his thoughts on China's only female emperor Wu Jiao, also knowing China as Wu Zetian. Coming up, Wu Jiao has long been and remains an indelible part of Chinese popular culture and just a 
important part of the collective Chinese psyche and imagination. More to come, so stick around. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share you know, their stories beyond the pages. You have written, Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. There were so many powerful and influential women throughout Chinese history, such as Empress Lu of the Western Han Dynasty or Empress Dowager Cixi of the Qing Dynasty. I mean, all of these women they were just like Wu Zhao. They wielded power. They were wives or mothers of emperors. But why? Did none of them have ever actually risen to the throne like Wu Jiao did? That's the million-dollar question. There are certain things you can say. Yeah, sure. You know, she was in the right place at the right time. Her rise. I do think it's a, a case of historical serendipity. Hmm. Uh, Tang China is unlike a lot of other periods in Chinese history. It's influenced by Central Asian steppe culture. Where women moved about more or less openly, they weren't restricted to the inner quarters. Her era was an open cosmopolitan time when you have bold, self-assured women riding horses, dressed in close-fitting, tight clothes that people would wear out on the Central Asian steppe. Women openly attending temple fairs along with men.、Mm. Um, Noble women divorced freely, engaged in extramarital affairs, and played polo and tug of war. So women were not sort of sequestered in the nay, in the inner quarters, as much during the, the Tang. And yes, she was a master of political and cultural spin, and had dozens of the best and brightest minds in, in the empire to, to help her out、mm-hmm. uh, to mine Confucian, Buddhist, and Taoist tradition for precedents that would help support her her rule. True, she was a brilliant MC, a master of ceremonies, who would stage these colorful, eye-popping ceremonies and build skyscrapers that loomed over Luoyang, and people would be filled with awe and wonder. And she was clever enough never to directly challenge or flout Confucian beliefs.、Mm. Uh, she usually tried to frame herself as a champion of Confucian values and virtues, and not an opponent. To the greatest extent possible, she'd usually frame herself as a the Confucian matriarch of the largest family, the conscientious and dutiful mother of the largest jaw of all, the Guoja, the、mm. great big family of state, state family. But at the same time, she lived in a period、uh, where there was sort of an ebb tide of Confucian influence, and there was a balance between Confucian Buddhism and Taoism, and she used each of these ideologies in turn when it served her purposes. But none of these things really explain how she rose to occupy the imperial throne. To truly understand the enormity of her achievement, you'd have to look at all kinds of variables—a dizzying number of variables. You'd have to look at her approach to governance,、yeah. uh, her style of managing political and military affairs of state, her relations with neighboring foreign peoples and states, and how she resettled a lot of foreign peoples in China during this time. The new characters we mentioned before, her frequent reign era changes,、uh, her strategic patronage of literature and arts, the way she manipulated the calendar, her instrumental use of rituals and architecture, her frequent reforms of names, titles, and offices. You know, you could go on and on. The list. Yeah. Uh, uh, in the biography, I try to touch on all of these elements, and while I think the book is a good start,、uh, a short work like this. It's really just the beginning to answer this intricate question, and I think that one of the reasons why 
her legacy and her, her sort of the, the myth of Wu Zhao has endured is that it's incredibly difficult to pinpoint that answer, to really explain how she pulled it off. Yeah, and what you have just said kind of reminded me of some Western female rulers. You know, some people tend to compare Wu Zhao with Isabella of France and Russia's Catherine the Great. But I think Wu Zhao was quite unique in her own right. She is, and I'm glad you brought this up. All three of those, uh, Wu Zhao and Russia's Catherine the Great and Isabella of France, are the source of scandalous rumors and legends. Uh, they have a colorful array of, of reputed lovers, uh, of both human and equine nature, uh, and an alleged penchant for sexual excess. Yeah. Reputation for devious manipulation in court politics, uh, a cold-blooded capacity for violence. One of the differences is that Isabella of France was uh, herself a regent rather than a du jour ruler. Mm. Um, Edward III was on the throne. Wu Zhao, I think, bears a closer affinity to Catherine the Great or to the Egyptian female pharaoh, Hatshepsut. Mm. Uh, she was the sole legal and formal du jour ruler. Mm. There are a couple other ways that she is distinct from the figures that you, you know, if we mention, again, Isabella or Catherine the Great, for instance. Wu Zhao severed the Tang's mandate of the Li family and established her own ruling dynasty, uh, the Zhou, and ruled in her own name. She replaced the Tang, ruled by the Li, with the Zhou, ruled by the Wu family. Mm. The other two ruled within the framework of existing dynastic houses. Uh, Isabella was a regent for the House of Plantagenet, and Catherine the Great continued the rule of the Romanov House. So what Wu Zhao accomplished is much more significant, uh, much greater, much more difficult. She established a new dynasty, breaking, severing, or at the very least interrupting the dynastic line for 15 years. Um, what these two other examples, both of these women were foreigners. Uh, Isabella was a French woman in England and uh, Catherine was a, a German in Russia. Well, Wu Zhao is Tusheng Tujang, the Tsongoren, you know, yeah. a, a Chinese woman. Yes. Finally, I think that although both the West and China have deep-seated traditions of patriarchal privilege and chauvinism, the Confucian ideology and, and sort of Chinese dualism uh, pose an even greater challenge to women and make her accomplishment even more difficult. Yeah. They have very basic ideas like male tian, heaven, and female di, earth or shadowy yin and sunny yang, the kind of inner domestic nay sphere of women and the outer public social why sphere of men. So the female is supposed to sort of dwell in the private domestic familial shadows. Yeah. Uh, so what Wu Zhao needs to overcome is not simply social and political restrictions, but it's part of a built-in part of culture, of a larger cosmological and natural order that would claim women are not suited to rule, yeah. uh, and that that notion's part of the normative and accepted natural order. So she has to subvert that natural order and overcome the weight of 2,000 years of tradition to create some new space within the parameters of an embedded cultural pattern. Hmm. Uh, and that accomplishment is what marks her achievement becoming China's first and only female emperor is something truly unique and, and exceptional. I see that as an accomplishment significantly greater than that of She-Wolf Isabella or of uh, Catherine the Great. 
Yeah, but in your book, you also mentioned that instead of elevating the status of women, whose reign actually led to the expansion of patriarchal ideology in Confucianism. So, could you explain that a little bit? That's true. Unfortunately, that her rule prompts a strong backlash or reaction from cultural conservatives,、mm-hmm. um, and it's not just Wu Jiao. Immediately after her reign, four other women dominate the court of the restored Tang Dynasty for near to a decade: Shangguan Wanar, the Taiping Princess, the Anla Princess. Taiping Princess is her daughter. The Anla Princess is her granddaughter, and then her daughter-in-law, Empress Wei. Yeah. By the time Li Longji,、uh, Tang Xuanzong, rises from crown prince to become Emperor Xuanzong in the eighth century, women had dominated the court in China for half a century, mostly Wu Jiao for forty of those fifty years. And there's a furious, a ferocious Confucian backlash that occurs beginning under Xuanzong and and strengthening. One of the things that Tang Xuanzong does is to demolish almost all of the monuments and symbols of her dynastic power. Yeah, and this begins what is a larger and long-standing conservative social and political trend of placing men above women, Han Chinese above non-Chinese, and Confucianism over Buddhism, and that becomes the kind of dominant cultural ethos. You know. For the late Tang and moving into the Song and late Imperial China, defines cultural attitudes in a lot of ways for the next thousand years. Just to, to cite one example, you know, by the ninth century, by the late Tang Dynasty, some ministers tried to convince the Tang Empress Dowager Guo、mm. to make decisions of state and to,、uh, in the place of an immature young emperor. And、uh, Empress Dowager Guo says. Do you want me to follow the example of Empress Wu? Although the emperor is very young, we can choose ministers of prestige and good Confucian character to guide him. How can I take part in the affairs of the external court? So, within a hundred years, we see women sort of reverting to a narrow Confucian role, and this Empress Dowager Guo is sort of holding to a principle from the Book of Rights. Nan bu yan nei, nu bu yan wai. Men don't speak of the inner. Women don't speak of the outer. So Empress Dowager Guo insists that the outer public political domain is a male realm, and it's not her role to intervene there. That women simply belong in the inner private familial domestic sphere.、Hmm. And by the Song Dynasty. You actually have the institution of bound feet emerge, the chanzu, to keep women sequestered in the inner quarters. So I, I see this as a trend that, in a lot of ways, a larger conservative cultural trend is a sort of violent reaction, a backlash, a response to、uh, Zhao's reign. Mm. But in your opinion, besides of the reinforcement on the patriarchal ideology. What else has been Wu Jiao's legacy? Well, like a lot of powerful flesh and blood leaders, she really has a, a layered and, and complex legacy. You do have 1,300 years of Confucian historiography that's cast her as a as a bloodthirsty monster, as someone who is whimsical, avaricious, murderous, lascivious, cruel, loving luxury and extravagance. And you have all kinds of popular works that have kind of cast her as a caricature. In the Qing Dynasty, Jinghua Yuan,、uh, 
the destinies of flowers in the mirror, she is cast as a pleasure-seeking fox spirit who commands flowers to bloom in the middle of winter. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, someone who is uh, you know thoroughly irrational, and 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 stories like this have sort of perpetuated misunderstandings and uh, mischaracterizations of Wu Zhao. Uh, helping turn her into more of a caricature than a, a flesh-and-blood figure. Yeah. You also have, even in the 20th century, you have a writer-scholars like Lin Yutang who compared her to Stalin and called her one of the greatest mass murderers in human history, mm. uh, which is a, a bit of an overstatement. Recent scholars have certainly been more sympathetic, but what you have then is you know, 1,300 years of myth all sorts of stories, many of them negative. Um, you have all of these layers of meaning that have been affixed to Wu Zhao, of myth, of lore, of legends, and, and stories. They've built her into something larger, something greater. Hmm. And she has sort of absorbed all of the contradictory historical judgments and, and these labels, both good and bad, to become a larger-than-life iconic figure. So today, we see her still featured prominently in Chinese pop culture. You have transcendent stars like Fan Bingbing or Liu Xiaoqing playing Wu Zhao in movies and in, in historical maxi-series uh, that, that are on TV for you know, month after month. And it just shows that Wu Zhao has long been and remains an indelible part of Chinese popular culture and just a, an important part of the collective Chinese psyche and imagination. Yeah. Now we have so many different films, TV shows, and novels that tend to give Wu Zhao different faces. So I wonder, in your own imagination, what kind of woman would she be? Would she be a femme fatale, a she-wolf, or a feminist icon? That's a difficult question because I think that you sort of have all of these elements rolled into one. Mm. I think one thing that a lot of people forget is that she was between her late 60s and early 80s when she was ruling. Mm. Uh, and, and yes, maybe she was sort of like uh, Elizabeth Taylor, uh, and, and she certainly loved to have some younger men around and, and probably had her stable of sort of young male nanchong sort of favorites. But she was also just hyper-literate with a tremendous sort of academic and cultural knowledge to draw on to make all kinds of, of sort of difficult decisions of state. Mm. And I think of her as the consummate politician and just a brilliant mind to balance all of the different constituencies of this multi-ethnic, multi-denominational empire she was uh, presiding over. Hmm. So Wu Zhao died at the year of 705, and more than 1,300 years have passed. So why does her story and her way of ruling still matter today? Well, her story matters, I think, and, and, and is still relevant, because a lot of the more insidious elements of patriarchy are alive and well around the globe today. Even in this day of the, the feminist movement, the 21st century, hashtag Me Too, this is bringing to light a lot of the ugliness of patriarchal ab abuse, you know, whether it's abuse of migrant women, uh, uneven wages, lack of political voice for women on the highest level, sexual harassment. 
it's important to have iconic reminders of women who struggled against and overcome immense odds to triumph. Wu Jiao has become a daughter of heaven, a son of heaven. It's because her legend is alive and she remains uh, part of China's collective consciousness. Hmm. And I think that in some ways she's an inspiration of sorts. The writer Salman Rushdie, he defined mythology as a family album or, or storehouse uh, of a culture's childhood hmm. uh, containing a society's future codified as tales that are both poems and oracles, and said that myths are the waking dreams our societies permit, that celebrate uh, the non-belongers, the different ones, the outlaws, and the freaks. Wu Jiao is one of these outlaws. She's one of these freakish anomalies. She's also a recurring figure in China's waking dream, and part of a major part of she's featured prominently in the great family album of Chinese tradition. Uh, and has her own uh, sort of luxury suite in China's cultural storehouse. So she remains a celebrity in China today. And it's significant because rather than simply accept parts that society wishes them to play, once in a while you have certain iconoclastic individuals like Wu Zhao who cause what feminist scholar Judith Butler calls gender trouble, hmm. people who can complicate and destabilize existing gender roles, who can question, subvert, and unmask the nature and the structure of the patriarchal edifice. And there are certain times and cultural moments where events and trends enable this kind of visionary individual to contest and change things, to reshape tradition. Wu Jiao is one of these individuals, but I also think that the present day, the 21st century, is another time when people could make some serious gender trouble and that that would be a very good thing. I mean, if you think that in that time, if 1,300 years ago, you could manipulate an unfair system and emerge at the very apex of power, what might a woman be capable of today? I mean, there certainly are built-in obstacles, but I don't know if the obstacles are as extreme as they were 1,300 years ago. Shui discussing the life and legacy of Wu Jiao with Professor Eng Harry Rothschild. He's the author of two books, Wu Jiao, China's Only Woman Emperor, and Emperor Wu Jiao and Her Pantheon of Davies, Divinities, and Dynastic Mothers. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. To learn more about us, follow us on our Facebook account, China Plus, or simply download the podcast by searching the keyword Ink and Quill on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Yang Yong. Talk to you again next week. Shall